All right, everybody. It's good to see you today. Thanks for coming to Sagemont. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. We're continuing through the book of 1 Peter together. Next week, we start a series we're call, calling Heaven and Hell. We're looking at our eternal destiny together starting next Sunday, but we typically go verse by verse through a book of the Bible in 1 Peter. Last week, I taught a crazy text, one of the most debated texts in history, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. Peter tells us that or rather, he's reminding us that we can endure unjust suffering, that we can endure persecution when it comes. And one of the things he does to comfort us in that is he told us, um, gives us this crazy verse about how when Jesus was dead in the flesh and he was alive in the spirit, he went and made proclamation of his victory to the spirits now in prison. And we're not gonna rehash that and go listen to it. But I talked about how that was a foreshadowing of a day that's coming where all of our unjust suffering will be completely and totally vindicated. There's coming a day where Jesus is gonna make it right. Now, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna jump ahead a few verses to 1 Peter 4, 7. And here's why I'm doing that. I'll go back probably and look and, and get to the previous verses there. But I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna jump ahead to 1 Peter 4, 7 because what he does is Peter shows us through verse 7 and 8 how we're supposed to live from now until that day of vindication. In other words, we know that there's coming a day sometime in the future where Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna make all this right. Y'all with me? It's gonna happen. He's gonna make it all this right. And we don't know when that's gonna be. And we're over here somewhere. And what Peter's doing is he's showing us today how we are to live in this really difficult in-between time between now and the return of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. How do we live from now until our day of ultimate vindication? And so let's read this together, 1 Peter 4, 7. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Okay? Now to get our mind around what he's saying, let's do this. Let's go back to verse seven and I want you to look at the first part of the verse there. He says this. He said, the end of all things is at hand. Now what does Peter mean when he says the end of all things is at hand? Well, he's not really talking about the apocalypse. He's not necessarily talking about the end of the world. What he's talking about is the consummation or the fulfillment of all things is at hand. So what does that mean when he says the consummation or the fulfillment of all things is at hand? Well, what he's talking about is the consummation or the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan of redemption, okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. From the first moments of creation when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, shortly after that, Adam and Eve sinned. And from that moment, God went to work and, and began to implement and put a plan into motion 
to renew us and to restore us back to himself after we sinned. And you see that plan of redemption being woven all throughout the Old Testament, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way through Moses and the law and the major and the minor prophets. You see God setting the stage for this plan of redemption to bring us back to himself. And then it hit a crescendo at the, when Jesus was born. He put on our flesh and came to um, born of a virgin to Bethlehem. And he lived a perfect life. And then he died on a Roman cross. And then he was raised three days later, conquering sin and death. And then Jesus then ascended into heaven. And then God sent his Holy Spirit to us. And the church of Jesus Christ was born. For the last 2,000 years, the church has been fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples of all the nations, and there's coming a day at some point, hopefully, in the very near future, where the trumpet's going to sound, Jesus is going to come busting through the clouds, and he's going to return to bring the church back to himself. That is God's ultimate plan of redemption. And so when Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, what he's saying it's actually pretty cool. He's saying, look, all the major historical event, events and God's ultimate plan of redemption have been fulfilled, have been occurred, and now we are in the final stages of this thing, and we're waiting patiently for the return of Christ. Okay? So, watch what he says next. Look at verse, First uh, Peter 4, 7. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. And then look at the next word. He says, therefore. Okay? You're saying the final stages. We're in the final stages of God's ultimate plan of redemption. We are waiting for the return of Christ. Therefore. And his whole point is this. He's showing us how you and I are to live. And he's showing how you and I are to respond in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. How do we live? How do we live in this really difficult in-between time? <clears throat> Excuse me, between now and the return of Christ. And what he's gonna tell us today and how he's gonna call us to live and respond is actually pretty radical. It's pretty radical. Now, let me stop and ask you guys a question. What are some of the ways that you've seen Christians respond to the reality that the return of Christ is imminent? And that the end of all things is at hand. What have you, how have y'all seen believers respond differently to that? Well, here's some of the ways I've seen it. You ever seen a person that was standing on a street corner, holding up a sign, screaming, repent, for the end is near? You ever seen that? I have. It's pretty radical. But it's a different kind of radical than what the Bible is calling for. It's a different kind of response than what the scripture is going to call us to do in light of the fact that the end of it end is at hand. You ever seen that show Doomsday Preppers? I've seen it a couple times. If you hadn't seen it, it's a show that about people that typically believe that the end of the world is near. So what they do is they stock up food and guns and ammo and they live in fallout shelters. And, um, and that's pretty radical. And honestly, I used to make fun of those people, but after the pandemic, they look like geniuses. Amen. <laughs> they had like whole shelves of toilet paper and they're geniuses. That's radical, but it's not the kind of radical that the scripture is calling us to. I, true story, I read a, an article several years ago 
about this group of people. And there's another group of people, Christians, that get really consumed in trying to figure out when Christ is gonna come back. And so there was this group of folks, they were from a church, and the pastor convinced his people that Jesus was gonna come back on a certain date. He had them convinced. I think it was like October 18th or something. And so as October 18th approached, his people sold everything. They sold all their stuff and they gave it away to the poor. And then when October 18th came, they all went to the church parking lot and dressed in white robes and waited for Christ to return. Well, nothing happened, right? And when we hear stories like that, we have a tendency to think those people are crazy. But I want you to hear something. What makes these folks crazy is not that they believe that the end is near. Scripture's clear that the end is near and there's hundreds of things that the Bible predicts that have come true and so will this one. So what makes these folks crazy is not that they believe that the end is near, that the end is near. What makes these folks crazy is how they're responding to the fact that the end is near. And what Peter is trying to teach us today is that our response to that reality that the end of all things is at hand is a radical one. But it's not a stand on the street corner and scream at folks kind of radical. It's not a stand out in the parking lot of the church with white robes or hoard stuff kind of radical. It's a completely different kind of radical. So in verse seven and eight, let's look at this radical way we're supposed to live in light of the fact that the return of Christ is near. Let's look at it, verse seven. Now, in the next few verses, Peter's gonna tell us to do four things. End of all things is at hand. Therefore, he gives us four things. We're gonna look at two today. And then we'll look at two after the sermon series on heaven and hell. Let's look at the first one. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That's number one. End of all things at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, here's what Peter just told us to do. He said, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, number one, point number one, if you're taking notes, here's what he just said. He said, we need to be thinking rightly and we need to be clear-minded so that you can pray. For a lot of us here today, including myself, this might, if you're a believer, not everybody, but some of us, I really do believe this might be the most important verse some of us hear all year long. Because what the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God is saying to us is, look, things are gonna get bad. Suffering is coming. And so as we walk through this really difficult in-between time between now and the coming of Christ, this is our response, church. We should not be driven to fear. And we should not be driven, driven to fatalism. But we should be driven to our knees. That's what he's saying. So we walk through this crazy, chaotic hurtful in-between time before the ultimate day of our, our, our vindication that shouldn't drive us to fear of fatalism, but to our knees, right? Our response, this is talking about our response to the coming persecution and light that the end is near. Our response is not to be angry or to flip out or to be afraid, but to be a praying people. And if we're gonna do that, here's this whole point. If we're gonna do that, then we have to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we don't get consumed by all the stuff going on around us, but we're people that pray. Now, 
Let's look at that text again, First um, Peter 4, 7. It says, the end of all things at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Look at those two words, self-controlled, sober-minded. Those are two really similar words in the original language, and they both carry with it the idea of not being carried away by undue emotion or uncontrolled passion. If you're self-controlled and sober-minded, you're not carried away by undue emotion or uncontrolled passion. And so what Peter's literally saying, again, the end is at hand, so stop being carried away by undue emotion or uncontrolled passion so that you can pray. And when I read that, it was convicting to me. It actually made a lot of sense. Y'all ever been in a really difficult, tense situation? You get into some conflict or something happens when it seems like the world is falling apart. Have y'all ever been in a situation like that? I have. And here's what I often do in those moments when it gets crazy and hurtful and chaotic and conflict's there and looks like the world's falling apart. Here's what I often do. I look at the problem and I have a tendency to want to start fighting the problem or fixing the problem. Can I get an amen from, from guys in here? Or maybe some girls. It's like, all right, you got a problem? I'm going to fight the problem. I'm going to fix the problem. But here's the problem. I get so caught up in my emotions and passions, and I'm so busy fighting the problem and fixing the problem that I forget to do the one thing that actually has the ability to solve the problem, and that is Pray. There are some problems we're facing we ain't gonna be able to fix. It's only gonna come out by prayer and by fasting. So how, how are we doing with that? I'm gonna ask that question a few times today. How are you doing with that? You should be completely honest with yourself, right? There's a lot of stuff going on in our country. And um, I think things... And the divide has gotten so bad that I, 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 don't, I don't see how we're gonna get out of it. And so we need to be living this out as believers. And so I wanna ask you a question. I want you to be honest with yourself. When you, when you guys look at the racial strife in our country, when, when you look at the political division in our country, when you look at things like um, attacks against religious freedoms and, and things like that, like, here's the question. What's your first response? When you see that division, when you see that fighting, when you see those attacks, what's your first response? Is your first response anger? Is your first response fear? Is your first response to, to fight or to fix? Or is your first response to pray? When, when, what the scripture is saying to us is that as followers of Christ and, and children of God, as we walk in that difficult in-between time when all this crazy radical stuff hits us, that we should not be ruled by our emotions and we should not be ruled by our passions, but the first primary reaction is to hit our knees. And if we're gonna do that, if we're not gonna be ruled by our passions and our emotions... Got to be self-controlled and sober-minded. So here's the question. How do we ensure that we can be self-controlled enough and sober-minded enough where we actually pray instead of flip out, get angry, get mad? Well, there's a lot of things that we could do. There's a lot of things we could do, but I just want to talk about one of them, all right? Y'all ready for this? 
I rolled up my sleeves in the first service before I talked about this. You've got to evaluate your life and see if there are things in your life that are causing you to be ruled by your emotions and your passions, that are causing you to be ruled by fear instead of being a person in prayer. I have had that happen in my life, and I made some radical changes because of it, and I want to tell you what it is. Here's what I think a lot of us are dealing with today that is keeping us from being self-controlled and sober-minded, and that is media and social media. I don't think this is going to come as a shock to anybody in the room. I'm, I'm pretty conservative as a human being. Um, I'm a Second Amendment guy. I own guns. I kill small defenseless animals on a regular basis. Um, I'm, a, I'm a limited government guy. I believe in religious freedoms. I, I, I hate abortion. I could keep going, but I'm a fairly conservative guy. But here's the thing you need to know about me, and this hit me like a ton of bricks a few years ago. Actually, it's probably more like 10 years ago, but there's something about my identity that far supersedes uh, my conservatism or my political affiliation, and that is my identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. I, I, I like... We got to stop following the donkey and we got to stop following the elephant and we got to start following the lion of Judah. We've got to. We've got to. And it hit me several years ago that there was something I was doing that was causing me to be more driven by my identity as a conservative more so than my identity as a follower of Christ. And that was my almost constant consumption of media. Social media, TV, that sort of thing. I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh. I'd go home, I'd turn on Fox News. I'd get on Twitter. And whenever something would happen, uh, you know, bad in the world, I, instead of going to the Lord and being a person of prayer and being self-controlled and sober-minded, I was going to those things, those pundits to be informed. And here's what I realized. Number one is that I was spending far more time consuming those things than I was spending time on my knees. And here's the other thing, is that because of my consumption of those things, I, it, it hit me that, man, I am walking around through life with this sort of low-level anger and frustration and fear about the direction of our country. Here's the thing, church. Sagemont, last time I checked, fear, anger, and frustration are not fruits of the Spirit. So I got convicted. And I got to the place where I had to turn it off. Now, I'm not saying that I don't ever consume media. I do, but I consume it just enough to be informed on what's going on in the world, but not so much that I'm walking around in this state of fear and frustration and anger. And that decision may not be for you, but for me it was. That decision has allowed me to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and so when things fall apart, I get informed, but then I go to the Lord in prayer and be a person that is led by the Spirit of God. Now listen, I want, I want y'all to hear me. Don't send me an email. Here, check this out. <laughs> I'm not saying that we don't pay attention. 
I'm not saying that we don't ever take a stand for what's right. I don't think that's biblical either. But what I am saying is that as a Christian, you must ask yourself the question, are those kind of things, your consumption of media and social media, are they producing in you the fruit of the Spirit? Are they producing in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or is that stuff producing in you the fruits of the flesh, which is enmity, strife, anger, quarrels, dissensions, and factions? For me, it was producing the latter. And so I had to stop it. And listen, if that's where you're at, where you've got these things in your life and it's not producing the fruit of the spirit, it's producing the fruit of the flesh, I'm gonna say something hard, but it's true. You're responding to the stuff out there no different than the lost world. And you're missing, we're missing our God-given call on our life to be sober-minded and self-controlled so that we can be a people of prayer. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. We're in the final stages of God's ultimate plan of redemption. Therefore, be uh, self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Radical, but it keeps going. And what he's about to say in our society is even more radical than what he just said. Look at verse eight. He said, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Let's leave this up for just a second. Let's read it again. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Listen, here's Peter's second point. Point number two, persist in a love for one another that covers sin. Persist in a love for one another that covers sin. I'm gonna tell you what that means in a second, but there's something here critical that you have to catch moving forward. Peter is not talking here about loving people that love you. The context Peter's talking about is loving people that sin against you. That's, that's a whole nother level of difficult. It's easy to love people that love you. It's not so easy to love people that sin against you, but that is the context. He's saying, look, the end of all things at hand, Jesus is coming back, so above all things, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. That's radical. That's radical. But for us to get our minds around what he's saying, what does that look like, I need to tell you about two words. We need to look at the word love, and we need to look at the word earnestly because he's telling us what that's supposed to look like and, and the extent we're supposed to do it. So let's talk about the word love for a second. What does it mean that we're to love one another that sins against us? Okay, I'm gonna, if you've been in church for a while, I'm gonna talk about a subject that a lot of you already know. You've heard it preached a million times, but for those of you that are new to church, check this out. In the Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek language is much more descriptive than English, and so we have the word love but in Greek, there's like four different words that get translated into English as love. For example, you got the Greek word phileo, and it's translated into English as love, as love. But when you look at the Greek language, it really means to be fond of something. It means that you really like it or you have warm feelings for it. And so if I were writing in the Greek language this sentence, um, I love the Dallas Cowboys. 
what I'm saying. I love the Houston Texans. No, we don't. If I love, what I'm saying is I have warm, fuzzy feelings for the Dallas Cowboys. That's what I'm saying. I'm fond of the Dallas Cowboys. That's not the word that Peter uses. He uses a different word. The other word for love is Greek word eros. And it gets translated in English as love. And it carries with it the idea of like a sexually attracted or physically attracted kind of love, eros. We get, the, we get the word erotic from it. Now, to understand what that kind of love looks like, best thing I can do is talk about the show The Bachelor, right? Now, <clears throat> I don't watch The Bachelor, but if you do, you need to make sure and come next week to my sermon on hell, all right? <laughs> I'm joking, sort of. Um, but everyone in my former church watched it. And so I watched it a couple times just to get my mind around it. My church was much younger and everybody was talking about, I'm like, what is going on? And I need to come up with sermon illustrations. So I watched it a couple of times. And here's the premise, if you don't know what The Bachelor is, and if you don't, you are godly and I love you. But anyway, if you don't know what it is, you get this bachelor guy and they go to some tropical place and, and get like 30 single women and, and he dates all the women and he kicks them to the curb till he gets down to two and then he marries one of them. It's brilliant. It's like a godly, godly thing, right? Um, but one of the things I learned as I watched the show is that in every season, there's always this one moment that's like the big pinnacle moment when, when everybody knows that this guy's relationship has gone to the next level with one of the girls is when he looks at one of the girls or multiple girls sometimes and says, I love you. And when he says that, 23-year-old women across the nation gasp. <gasps> he said it. He said it. And now we know that this love is for real because he said, I'm in love with you, right? Well, here's the thing. The dude's only known her for two weeks. He doesn't love her. Tony Evans said one time, that's not on my notes, but Tony Evans said one time, he's a pastor, amazing, best preacher in the country, I think. He said, any little boy can fall in love with a woman. He said, but it takes a grown man to love one woman for a lifetime. It's true. It's true. That's what Peter's talking about. When the guy says, I'm in love with you, what he's saying is I'm really physically attracted to you and I'm having some hormonally charged feelings for you. <laughs> but the word that Peter uses here in the text is not phileo, it's not a feeling. It's not eros, it's not this hormonally charged sort of sexually attracted kind of thing, the word that Peter uses for love is the Greek word agape. And this is, this is crucial here. Agape is, is love that's an action. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It can be those things, but it's more than those things. It's an action. Uh, agape love is an action that you show another person regardless of how you feel about them. Um, and the, and the thing to remember is that the context of this is people that sinned against us. 
And so what, what he's saying here is to love one another, to agape one another, it means that you serve one another. Uh, to agape someone means that you care for that person. To agape someone means you forgive that person. To agape someone means you consider um, that person more important than you, even if you don't agree with them. He is talking about the context of people that were persecuting the church. And you say, you keep loving them. You keep showing them the action of love. And if that were not difficult enough, he takes it to another level. Real quick, watch this. First Peter 4, 8. says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, in English, we... We don't think much about that. We move on, but it's important to note, watch this. Peter could have easily said, above all, keep loving one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Y'all with me? And that still would have been pretty radical. Hey, keep loving people, keep agapeing people, even though you completely disagree with them and they're persecuting you. That would be radical, but he adds a word to it in the Greek. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly earnestly, and that's an intense word in the original language. It's a word, it comes from the, I think, Greek word katenes or something, check this out. It's a word that means to stretch and to strain to the fullest, most maximum effort possible. It's literally what it means in the Greek. Uh, they often used it to talk about horses that were running as fast as they could possibly run. They were stretching and straining their muscles, muscles to the maximum possible extension and effect. I'll give you an uh, idea of like where I've had to do that. There's, there's been several times in my life where I've had to exert myself physically to the maximum level possible. I was in the Corps of Cadets, told you about that. But there was one time where I honestly thought that I might die and I was forced to do this katina as maximum everything. I was on vacation so with a buddy of mine, we had taken a, this little boat to this uh, island off the coast, and it's about the size of maybe twice of our sanctuary, and we tied up um, on one of the little ball things, and we jumped in, and we started snorkeling. Well, I thought we were about halfway around. In hindsight, we were only about a quarter way around. We couldn't see the boat, and this huge storm came up, just blew in really fast, and waves were really starting to get big and it was pouring down rain. And so we had to make a decision. Are we gonna come back the way we came or are we gonna keep going all the way around? We had gone for a long time, so we thought it'd be better to go all the way around. Well, that was a big mistake. In hindsight, we were on about a fourth of the way. Well, we kept going. We couldn't stop and rest because the side of the island was just all rocks and the waves got worse and the rain got worse and the waves started getting higher and I was in decent shape at the time, but not great shape. And I was swimming. It took us like 45 minutes to get there. Now, I don't know if you've ever swam for 45 minutes in a storm. It's not much fun. And I was getting to a point where I would swim up a wave and just rest on the way down. Swim up a wave, rest on the way down. My buddy was a, a triathlete, so it wasn't a huge deal for him. But there was actually a moment somewhere about three-fourths of the way through where I was so exhausted and I was so tired that I literally had to make a conscious choice in my mind to keep going and not die. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. It was just like, I have two choices. I can either keep going or I can die. And so I dug down deep, fighting Texas Aggie Corps, cadet stuff, and I kept going. Finally made it to the boat. 
And I was so exhausted, I couldn't even lift myself into the boat. I kept falling out. And my buddy had to literally pick me up and get me in the boat. I had used my strength to the absolute maximum limits of its capacity. And church, that's the word Peter uses. Think about it. What scripture is saying to us today is in light of the fact that the end, of the, the end is at hand, when someone sins against you as a response, the response of the child of God is you show that person the action of love and you don't just do it, but you do it to the maximum limit of your capacity. That's what the Bible says. How are you doing with that? Um... If we're completely honest with ourselves, I, I, I don't think we do. It's a really difficult thing to do, whether it's our marriages, friendships, work relationships, and even the really difficult stuff. And you start engaging with people of different political ideologies or different cultures or different races. What I'm seeing is that we don't love one another earnestly. We love one another conditionally. Even as believers, we're saying, I'll love you until you hurt me. I'll love you until you disagree with me. I'll love you until it starts getting really difficult to love you, and then I'm gonna stop. But the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God as it is being written to a group of persecuted people, a group of people that are going to die for their faith. It says... When you're persecuted, when it gets really, really difficult, you don't love conditionally, you love unconditionally. You serve, you care, you forgive, and you do it to the maximum extent that you possibly can. Now, here's the thing. Why? Why? Why do we do that? Hang with me. Look at verse, verse Peter 4.8. If we could get this next part, because some of y'all are already mad at me. You're like, but Matt, what about this? But what about that? What about this? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I be going after this? Hang with me. Watch what he says. First Peter 4, 8. Here's why in the world we would do that. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And he says, since love covers a multitude of sins. That's the key. Love one another to the maximum extent you can. Here's why. Because love covers a bunch of sin. He's saying that when somebody sins against you, our typical reaction is to sin against them in return. He says, don't do that. When someone sins against you, don't take revenge. But what you do is you cover that sin with love to the maximum extent possible. Now, to get our minds around that, hang with me, guys. Almost done here, but to get our minds around why we do that and what that means, I want to read one verse to you, Proverbs 10, 12. Watch here, it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Now look at those two words, stirs and covers. In the original language there, Hebrew, Proverbs, those are actually opposites of each other. So to stir means to aggravate or to increase. It means to aggravate or increase, to cover means to calm and to soothe. And so when someone sins against you, believer, you have two choices. 
Someone sins against you, they hurt you, they disagree with you, they slander you, you have two choices. You can respond with hate, but what the scripture's saying, and it's right, is all that does is stir up and aggravate and increase the problem. Or you can cover that sin with love. And as difficult as that is, if you will cover that sin with love, it calms and it soothes and it decreases the problem. How are you doing with that? Good news is that I see a lot of Christian voices out there living this out. I think it's Christ-like. They're being slandered. They're being attacked. And they respond with Christ-like love. They look like Jesus. But the bad news is that there is a lot of folks, a lot of Christians, a lot of Christian voices out there probably some in this room that are not covering sin against us with love, but we're stirring up strife. We're strife stir, which is the opposite of what we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be a strife stir. We're supposed to be a peacemaker. And I'm so weary, guys, I'm so weary of seeing Christians, Christians. Lots of people do this all the time and they always will. What I'm weary of is seeing Christians shout at each other across the political spectrum. I'm so tired of believers shouting at each other, you're a white supremacist. Well, you're a socialist that's embraced CRT. Critical race theory. Well, you're a racist. Well, no, you're a racist. You're an anti-vaxxer that wants to kill people. You're a sheep that the government is completely in control of. Does that sound familiar? I see it every day. And it looks nothing like Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers and above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And so let me end today by asking you a quick question. Who in the world does that? Who in the world does that? Who in the world when they're bombarded with a multitude of sins, responding by loving earnestly. Who does that? Well, the answer to the question is nobody in the world does that except those people who have already been shown that kind of love. Let that sink in. The only people that'll ever love that way are people that have shown that kind of love. And listen, church, who in this world has, who, who in this world has been loved to the fullest possible level of exertion despite of a multitude of sins against them? Who loved that way? Yeah, man, Jesus did. Jesus loved that way, and the answer is, is that you and I have been loved that way through the person of Jesus Christ. Hang with me, I'm almost done. I got like that, this much notes here. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. 
Ephesians 2, 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse four, but God. Two best words in the Bible right there. We were children of wrath, but God. What did God do? He's rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Listen, when you did not deserve it, and you did not earn it, and had not earned it, he loved you, and he loved you earnestly. When you were an enemy of God, your sin put him on the cross he loved you to the fullest extent possible and that's why Jesus said this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you and the only way the only way I promise you the only way you'll ever walk out those doors and love somebody that sinned against you and love them earnestly is when you remember and it hits you. That's exactly how Jesus loved me. But when you look at the cross, when you look at the cross, how else could we respond? 